This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Gerald, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much for having me. Helen is a best-selling Australian author. Would we say Australian? Yes, we would say Australian. Honorary Scot. Okay, all right. Uh, She's from country Victoria who now lives and works in Glasgow, Scotland. She worked for 15 years as a criminal justice social worker before turning her hand to writing fiction. Uh, lots of content there, I would imagine. She is the author of best-selling psychological thrillers, including Ash Mountain, The Donor, The Cry, and Dead Lovely. Her latest book, Keep Her Sweet, is about a sibling rivalry that turns very sinister. So Helen is in Glasgow as we speak. Now, I want to know if you have lived away from home for that long, how do you identify so um, Australian, but an honorary Scot, I would say. Feel, I always feel and still feel very Australian. And Scots love Australians and I think vice versa. So it's, I've, I haven't tried to keep my accent, but I haven't lost, no, I, mean, I haven't lost it at all. And I, I think that's, um, you know, people like it. <laughs> so it worked for me in social work as well. I think it came over as kind of classless, you know, and I felt like I could sort of fit in anywhere. So definitely an Aussie, but um, it's been so long since I've been home. I feel really homesick and I need to set my feet on Australian soil, which I will will be doing in a few weeks, actually. And is is that because of COVID? You haven't been able to move? Yeah. uh Tell me this. I have this theory because I've got lots of friends who live overseas and who are Australian. I've got a friend who lives in San Francisco and he's been there for over 20 years. He married an American. I've got a friend who lives in France and they've none of them have lost their accent but what i do notice about some of them and I, i'd like to know what you think about this is my parents my parents are lebanese australian right and they left their hometown 20 30 40 years ago a long time ago and a lot of immigrants do this their memory of their homeland their language of their homeland what they know of their homeland is really based on their experience back then So often you find that cultures like that, when, you know, when I went to Lebanon recently, I I found that they couldn't even understand what I was saying when I was speaking Arabic because it was Arabic of 30 years ago or Arabic Mm -hmm. of 40 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. So do you think that that's happened to you? Like, you know, is Australia 30 years ago? Like, is it the same place? Do you... Yeah, no, I think I don't know, actually. And that's why I feel like I haven't been home enough to feel confident about even language, you know, I, I noticed in the Keep Her Sweet, which was edited by, and I got notes from the Australian publisher as well, I'd written, you've said I'm allowed to use the F word, so here it goes, but I'd written get to fuck about 14 times and they're like, 
We don't say that in Australia. We so don't. I just change it to fuck off. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so um, things like that, I am completely out of touch. And even when I was writing Ash Mountain, I decided to write it in the 90s because I felt like I knew that, you know, but I don't know Melbourne. Melbourne has changed so much, as has so Glasgow. Much. So much, you know. So yeah. I don't really have the confidence in that setting to write. And so the next book I've written, I'm writing, isn't set in Australia, I just feel like I need to go back there and um, get some new experiences and, and just understand it better again because, yeah, I think I am a 30-year-ago Australian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lovely author that I know who lives in LA, uh, Cassie Austin, and she said the same thing. She, she, I asked her how she dreamt. Did she dream Australian or did you dream American, you know? And I think Peter Carey's the same. You know, most of his books are set in Australia. Yeah, and I think there's something about writing about when you, when you were a child. You know, there's something mm. so vivid and the experiences had so much impact on you that I could write about Kilmore, I think, forever, which is the town I grew up in outside of Melbourne. You know, it just I feel it so much. Mm. And I've spent about 30 years here not feeling confident about writing about Glasgow the way that Glaswegian writers do. You know, they they get it. It's in their bones, you know. Um, and I'm only just starting to feel comfortable writing about here now. And it's taken 30 years. I feel, yeah, I've got the right to write about it here now, you know. I think you have. Um, I think 30 years is a long time. I think I've earned it, yeah. <laughs> okay, so tell to me about your career. You were a social worker and how did you get to be a social worker? Talk to me well, about that. So I, uh, while I was at uni in Melbourne, I got a job working in the Trades Hall Council in a sort of community group called the Inner Urban Regional Housing Council. For years, I still said Inner Urban Regional Housing Council, Helen speaking, <laughs> no matter what job I was in. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of a, a lobbying group for social housing. So I, I became a lefty then, I think. That's all. That's when I sort of got to know politics, you know, and um and social workers, and I got to know a lot of people who were working in that area. So then when I was travelling in London, because I'd done that job, I managed to get a job in um, in London in a hostel for ex-offenders, working just in admin I was working in first. And I just found it fascinating. I just found the people fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I remember sort of getting a book together of people's stories, of people who are, you know, life lifers, you know, um, they'd committed murder, all sorts of crimes, all sorts of people in this 50-bed hostel. And just being fascinated by the human stories and also feeling good about what the job was, you know, that you were trying to help people stay out of jail and um, get jobs. And How, how all... come they were at the hostel? They, they, they'd come out of jail. And they were homeless, yeah. So oh, it wasn't right. in that one, it wasn't con- a condition of anything, but following that job, I'm still unqualified. I had an arts degree, but I didn't have a qualification in social work. Then I got a job in Edinburgh and I thought it was going to be another lovely hostel like the one in London was. Um, But this was for very high risk offenders who had a condition of their parole. So they'd all done at least four years. So all of them were serious crimes. About two thirds of them were sex offenders and they had a condition to live there for a year And it was a mixed at the time in the 90s, I can't believe this, but it was a mixed hostel, women and men, sex offenders and women, you know. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) I had to do sleepovers there and, uh, you know, you were sort of on duty all the time and you were on your own. And it was the most terrifying experience of my life. But I was hooked by then on social work. And if I had my time again, it's exactly what I would do again. I think it's it's a really fascinating job. I think it's a real privilege that, having that sort of access to people's lives, you know. Now when I look back on it, I think that 
when you when I became qualified after that, I did social work at Glasgow Uni and then worked in Glasgow in various area teams and also in the prison. Yeah, I just felt like it was the most fascinating job. You know, just I'm never tired. We'll do it again is what I was saying. I think you get a chance to talk to people. Actually, what I was going to say was that you kind of become, and I think back on it now, that what I didn't like about it is that you're a spy, really. You know, and in worst case scenario, a book I wrote about the um, setting of a social work area team, you're kind of a spy, but with a lanyard that says spy. You know, so people know you're coming into their houses to dig for information, but you've still got to maintain that kind of relationship and care. I think, you know, keeping that care element there at the same time as a lot of power and control because you can remove people's children, you can breach people and they'll be heading back to jail. So there's actually quite an uncomfortable, for me, amount of power in that job but fascinating. And I also loved the people that I worked with. They were all people who gave a shit about other people. And that makes such a difference to your day, you know, if you're around people who are actually nice, you know. So I I loved social work and I'm still registered as a social worker. I'm still expecting that I'll have to go back again because I've I've come and gone. I've had leaving parties, about four or five different leaving parties, going off to be a writer. Yeah, I'm going off to be a writer. I'm not First coming one back. was a good <laughs> And then I come back, you know, with my tail between my legs. But everyone's very nice about it. And people kind of like you when you fail. So it's been lucky that I've had it as a sort of fallback. And I always know that if I need, you know, a regular income again, that it's probably there. Although after writing, worst case scenario, I'm not sure if they'll have me back. But uh, Now that yeah. reminds me, it's you've got, Helen, you've got a similar um, backstory to another Australian writer that we love here. He's Tasmanian. His name is mm. Kyle Perry. And Kyle Perry. Kyle Perry. And Kyle. He's a book called The Deep. And mm. he's a Tasmanian, a young Tasmanian writer, but he works as a social, mm. social worker as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so I'm going to read that. Yeah, 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 definitely. Great guy. Now, I want to go back to um, just a little bit about fear, rehabilitation. Like when you were in that hostel, were you in a room and you locked the door at night? Like were you quite frightened? Right. Um, uh, yeah. Terrified. <laughs> in fact, it's going to be my next book because I think that um, that fear I had as a 23-year-old working in Edinburgh at a, the time of train spotting where yeah. heroin was, was just – it was funny because it was in the really posh part of Edinburgh, right in the middle, in a big um, townhouse. But you've got these guys who were, it was mayhem. The police were there every night. I used to get a visit from the police every night and they'd say, how, how do you do this job? This is horrendous. You know? I know. And it was badly managed at the time. You know, there was a lot of dodgy stuff going on. And I got out of there pretty fast and did, um, did my social work qualification and but I was really afraid. In fact, I've never been so afraid. And I think a lot of that was I didn't know what I was doing. You know, mm. they are unqualified staff in those kinds of jobs and it can and it can be it can be a lot, you know. My daughter actually just worked in hostels for the homeless over last year when COVID was happening and she got a taste of that too. And it's, it's fascinating, but it is scary. You know, mm. there are ODs, there are attempted suicides, there are crimes going mm. on, there were weapons in the house, there were drugs in the house, there were big dealers, big sex offenders, you know, like really serious sex offenders. So I was I was scared and I don't know if the right word, but a little in awe of these serious offenders because they're like from a world that I don't know and I'm like, wow, tell me all about it. You know, I was drinking it all in. But when it came to, 
you know, incidents happening, I don't think I dealt with it very well. I was really scared. Well, you were young I think it's so important to have the right manager and the right management team behind you and to feel safe. And I I don't think any of us felt safe. It it changed a lot after after I left and they've fixed it up a lot. But um, I didn't feel safe. No, and you were 23. I mean, you know, it's uh, yeah. very Yeah, and I young. did lock the door big time. I locked the door big time, but it was only one tiny little lock between me and all the other bedrooms, you know. But you did. So you left Australia to travel, like you left Melbourne mm-hmm. to travel, and then you kind of got jobs working and your career, I guess, started to be defined. Is that right? It is, and I also fell in love. So when I was at the point of leaving that hostel in Edinburgh, I was wanting to, I had applied for Melbourne University and Glasgow for social work. And I don't know how, but the interviews sort of worked out around the same couple of weeks and I got into both of them. And so it was a big decision about, you know, do I stay here? Do I drag my boyfriend over to Australia? Um, Would he find work? You know, and in the end, on the balance of it, we decided to stay here and Glasgow's funny because I hated it at first. I could not stand the weather. I thought it was the most depressing city I'd ever been in in my life. But it kind of gets hold of you, this city. It's like a, it's a fun place full of really lovely people and um, everybody's up for a laugh and it's walking. You can walk everywhere, which I really like. I think we made the right decision. But my kids are now at the age where I think they're going to head off to Australia and we may never see them again. You know, we're like, no, don't go. <laughs> Live here. I've been it's to Edinburgh. travelling in your 20s. Yeah, dangerous. Really dangerous. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So I guess in a way it was accidental. Then tell me... um, how you then came to writing. I mean, you've got like so many, so much story to draw on, I guess, from your experience. And and a lot of people do, but they don't really turn that into fiction, do they? No, but I, my mum was a literature teacher and right. uh, she was really into language. Same with my dad, you know, they were always quoting things and really into good, I mean, we only had classics in the house. I had to sneak things in that were a little filthy, you know, mm. none of those. Like <laughs> a Jackie say Collins a little, or something. I mean, even, even less than that, you know, even yeah. Catcher in the Rye was dodgy. For oh, mine. right. You know, wow. My yeah. mom, I know, I know. They were very sort of straight laced. So I always had that love of writing and my mum had wanted to be a writer when she was young, but she she fell in love with a guy who was a widow with eight children. So she became a little busy to do it. So I guess I always had it as a, wow, wouldn't that be an amazing job? But I never thought that I 
I never had the confidence to think that's something I would ever do. But when I met my partner, Serge, who's actually sitting here listening behind me, <laughs> he was wanting to be a writer too, and that's what we bonded on. He was a journalist with the BBC. And so we we started sort of writing short stories. Well, he was writing screenplays and I was writing short stories and we were writing just for each other. And, and it just felt, I mean, it sounds really wanky, but just like magic happened. I'm like, oh, my God, where did that come from? When yeah. I wrote my very first, I didn't even finish it because I didn't know how to finish a story at that point. But just to have a character sort of fly away on the page and you think, whoa, that felt better than sex. Sorry, yeah. Serge, but, it, you know, really felt great. So I got hooked on trying, but then we were, he got some short films made. His career took off really quickly. I got stuck. I didn't know how to do it. And I didn't realise how much work goes into, you know, the just how much work goes into it full stop, how many yeah. decisions there are, how, you know, how much thinking is required. It doesn't just happen for me when I sit no. at the computer. Oh, no. I've got to tell you, Helen, I've interviewed over 400 writers and I don't think for anyone it just happens. It's, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, but people do, Some a lot of people fly by the seat of their pants, but I think maybe because I started off screenwriting because I thought okay Serge is doing screenwriting it's taking off and it looks really easy because <laughs> there's hardly any words on the page there's all these white spaces so I tried that for about um five six years and I wrote about three or four full screenplays and I did a lot of courses so that's where I did my sort of learning about writing and I went to co on courses and residential courses which were great fun a lot of drinking but a lot of learning and I was in development with, you know, several production companies and I had all those meetings and I, and I just learned about structure and story. character and story. Yeah. yeah. But nothing got made, failed miserably, and I got very busy because I was working as a social worker and had two young kids. So my writing thing sort of had a 10-year of me just thinking, well, that's not going to happen. And then when I got pregnant with my second child, there's something about having a baby that makes you think, I can do this, I can do anything, you know. And I had a lot of energy when I was pregnant. So eight months pregnant with Joe, who's 22 now, I started writing a book. One, You know, I gave up on the screenplays because I'd gotten so close or I felt like I'd gotten so close. And the last one was in this competition and one out, three out of ten were going to be made and I got to last ten, but then it was a no again. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try prose. And I remember going up to the attic and um, and I just it just flew. It just out of me, unlike the screenwriting stuff. And I think because I'd learned all of that story stuff with screenwriting, and I remember coming down the stairs saying, oh, my God, Serge, because I'd been writing comedy up till then. And I said, oh, my God, there's a sex offender in mine. And he's like, isn't this comedy? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> comedy with dead people, you know. So um, so that's how it kind of started because, and then I I got, I think because I had a screenwriting agent, it was much easier for me because I had contacts through him and he knew a literary agent. So he got me in touch with a literary agent and I, so I saw it sold pretty much straight away. That book. And which book was that? That was Dead Lovely, which right. initially I sold first to Alan and Unwin. Right. And then I had Faber and Faber and um, they published my next four or five books. Just going back to, to the first one. So you were able to sit there and write, you know, 60, 70,000 words that that story just came yeah. out and you knew the craft of doing that. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, at the same time, because I had failed in screenwriting, I thought to myself, 
I'm not even going to think about what I've learned and I'm not going to follow any rules. I'd spent the six years with these screenplays going to the comedy department and them saying, hey, this isn't comedy, them handing it over to the drama department. This isn't, this isn't drama. There's funny bits in it. And just no, you know, and I thought no one gets that. I don't, I don't understand actually how people feel that comedy can't be in, you know, part of everything. You know, laughter happens. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in Australia and Glasgow especially, I think, you know, funerals are funny, you know. (laughs) It's, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're awful as well, but laughter is a huge thing. So while I knew a lot more and I felt more confident, I also thought I'm writing this for myself. I didn't actually write that book to be published. I just thought I'm going to see what's fun and what comes out and what, and I guess that's where voice comes in it's a bit of a wanky word again but you know it's true and I think that's where I found my voice because I thought I'm not going to listen to the oh you can't have comedy can't have a funny character you can't have you've got to be this you've got to be that I'm just going to write whatever comes out and that's when it sort of happened for me and that's what I I would sort of um suggest to people who are writing that just go to your teenage diary because when I look back that's the the tone of that is my teenage diary and that's my voice, you know, and I was kind of too embarrassed to use it really because, you know, what my teenage diary is just ridiculous. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I think it was the voice that happened at that point more than anything. I like that. I haven't heard that advice before. So let's talk about The Cry because that was made into a um, TV series, wasn't it? And when you were writing it, were you thinking of it visually? I was, I suppose, because the interesting thing, having not managed to get any screenplays made, when I wrote books, I had a lot of interest. And I think because you're giving producers a, a good read, treatments are crap to read and screenplays are kind of, they're better, but they're not as good as reading prose, you know, where you've really got somebody's put in the thousand hours work thinking about the characters and done all of that. And so producers are after books. And so what I found when I wrote Dead Lovely was that I had immediate uh, interest and Claire Mundell, who works for, she's the creative director of Synchronicity Films in, in Glasgow. Uh, she's a great indie and a great person. We had a lot of fun together. So she optioned my very first one and she tried to get it made, but again, com- went to comedy, it went to drama, it went to, they're like, what the fuck is this? And um, then she optioned the third one, The Devil's Staircase, she optioned and didn't get anywhere with that. And then I think Bloody Women she's now optioned and Viral she's now So Claire has been my champion from the very start. And so The Cry, yeah, it's, it got made, what, four years ago, three years ago? But we had been working on various projects about 10 years before that. And the cry she optioned, as as soon as I wrote the first 100 pages, I went around to her office and said, I think I've got something here. She said, I think you have to. (laughs) So um, she was working on that before it was published as a um, TV thing and took, oh, it's a horrible process. Oh, my God, development. I'm going to stop you there. She started working on it before it was published, but had you finished it as a book? No, no, she'd only read the wow. 100 pages, yeah. yeah I'm not wow. sure. I think I probably had to finish it to get paid. But, yeah. Um, yeah, we were definitely thinking this is, it was the co-production element of it too. I think that Scotland, Scottish people really genuinely do love Australians and they love Australia and it, and it was it really hit home here. People love seeing that um, landscape and the open mm, sky beautiful. and Aussies with their yeah. accents and everybody seems happy, you know. Mm. So, um 
so it was amazing because yeah but as I was just saying it's got it was a hard it's a hard process so the cry I think about a year before it was greenlit so Claire got money she found and the big coup with these projects is always when they find a good screenwriter and I'm now kind of starting to work towards learning how to be a good screenwriter so that maybe I can be on that list, but I'm not on that list at the moment. You know, to get a TV show, the writers are the ones with the power. They're the ones who who make it happen and who you need the most. So getting Jacqueline Perskine was like, whoa, it was fantastic. And Claire took us out for lunch and um, and said, okay, you know, uh, and I can't remember how Jacqueline put it, but she basically said to me, this is mine now. And also, so were you writing to finish the book at the same time that it was being? No, I'd finished it by the time we had Jacqueline on board. And I think after that is when the BBC put money in for Jacqueline and she did the writing and, you know, she's just so good. She is so good. When I was like, watch the show, I, I honestly thought a lot of the li- the great lines in it, I'm like, oh, I'm so clever that I wrote that. You know, and I went, yeah. did I write that? No, Jacqueline wrote that. But she's got, she was so in the head of the characters that she wrote things that were per- that I would have, you know, that's exactly what Joanna would have done. That's exactly what Alistair would have done. And so um, we got kind of greenlit the way it goes is that you know it goes up the line people read it and then it heads up with the director of drama at the BBC and at that time I can't remember who it was but she gave it the the one stamp that it needed and then it just goes to get the sort of official stamp so it basically was greenlit and I was working as a social worker at the time and just finding the job still still part-time I'd gone back to um, criminal justice in Paisley which was five years of brilliant, brilliant, fun, you know, amazing job. And I got a good few books out of it. I'm, I need to go back to social work to, to, to write another one. <laughs> to get your storyline. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. I mean, sitting on your own, you do you do need material. Yeah, I do need stimulation. And I'm every now, I think that's been great for me that every five years I've been able to do another five-year stint in social work. Say with this, the cry, do you, mm. it, it's kind of in a way that you had to, start writing books to finally get what you wanted to get in your career 10 years ago. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. And now I'm thinking soon they might let me do the writing, you know, (laughs) which uh, is exciting too. At the same time, I like writing on my own and making decisions on my own. And I've got, there's a project tomorrow I'm doing a Zoom for and it's so hard going over and over and over the same story and having 10 different people sending five pages of notes and, you know, like, oh, my God, you know, that that actually just sort of pisses me off as a writer. So um, I don't know if I'm ready for that yet or if I would need to. But I was talking about the, the rubber stamping of the BBC. So, but then she left for another job like the day after. So Claire, and I was just about to leave social work because I thought this is happening, I'll have enough money to to just be full-time again writing. And it just dies a death. You don't hear anything. Claire and I were both really depressed. Like, it was so close. And then a year later, someone says, we're looking for Scottish content, and someone says, oh, there's underneath this pile there's something that such and such was reading a year ago. And suddenly the next week it is greenlit. You know, so it's... it's um, I remember working with a director years ago before I was writing prose and he said, just never expect anything with screenwriting, yeah, you know, and I think that's the 
that's the case. Yeah. But, yeah, books are the way forward. And I think um, even write a novella or a short story, just get a good read for a producer to get hooked on. And that um, makes it perfect sense to me because, mm-hmm. I mean, if you've written a book, good book, then you engage the re- reader on so many levels, intellectually, emotionally. You know, there is different to a screenplay, of course, because you just immerse yourself in that story, don't you? Yeah, and you're kind of directing and acting as well. And yes. so I think, you know, an actor can read it and get, oh, and the director can read it and think, oh, this is what I'd be looking for in that shot, you know. So I say that very arrogantly. But you, you are kind of doing the whole thing. So, oh, yeah, it's the way definitely it's been the way for me to get TV interest, which has always been my aim. Yeah. I love a good I love a good TV series. You've kind of taken um, the hard road in just about everything, but that's okay. <laughs> 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 you yeah, although you know other people it's it's a hard road for everyone writing it's, it's yeah. so hard and I think yeah. even at this stage people expect oh you know you're a millionaire and you're but actually it's a pretty much a struggle every year because you're having to reapply by doing another book you know and mm. does your pub is it worth publishing did you make enough money last year for anyone to have any interest in publishing you Writers make very little anyway, even if they're the you know the best seller of that year. It's not much money, so I haven't got there yet. I'm not a millionaire yet. No. <laughs> way, way are, are you a full time writer? Yeah, I'm a full time writer, and my husband's been a full time writer for thirty years. So we're lucky from that point yeah. of view. So keep her sweet. Just a little bit about um, what the book's about, because it certainly um, piqued my interest. I'm one of five girls and a brother. Oh, yeah. Because, um, yeah, siblings are interesting, aren't they? They are. Whenever I had asked, because I was thinking about, I'd watched War of the Roses and I thought that film was so perfect that you could never make it now. You can never laugh at, at domestic violence between a man and a woman, I think now and it's not funny obviously and it's not funny but everybody does laugh about domestic violence between siblings actually whenever I question people and say well, well did you ever fight oh yeah oh, fuck yeah yeah I broke such and such as arm and and they'd say no no we got on really well oh hang on yeah I did push her through out of the car you know or something like and then they'll laugh about it and I think but is the other one laughing mm-hmm. <laughs> you know so mm-hmm. I was starting to wonder and also I was thinking about us because we're kind of empty nest for another three days. The kids keep coming home again. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking about um, couples who are at the sort of empty nest stage where I think you get quite excited about, you know, dating again and having a life again and not, not just being a mother and a father. But increasingly and because of the cost of living crisis especially, kids are having to stay at home longer. And so you've suddenly got a different dynamic completely where parents aren't really parents anymore and the kids aren't really kids anymore. And what does That's that mean? If you had got, the house. Yeah. Yeah. And we've downsized and a lot, you know, yeah. so, you know, suddenly you've got kids coming back to a house that maybe isn't, mm-hmm. isn't set up for a family in that way. Um, so, yeah, I started thinking about empty nest and sibling violence and whether or not, and I don't know this because there are, there are some like, podcasts and uh, YouTube videos about um, adult sibling violence. And they're saying it's a mm. hidden, hidden epidemic, that it's the most mm. unreported violence that there is. And and I, do, I was just asking the question, really, I don't have the answers, but I was wondering about adults living at home again. Is anybody experiencing that? If you had a sort of bully, uh, bullying sibling, which a lot of people do, how does that look when you both end up back at home uh, without any parenting going on? 
you know, it could be, I thought it could be quite dangerous. So I wanted to sort of write about sisters who end up in that situation. And I was aiming for the kind of War of the Roses tone because I remember sort of when Kathleen Turner hit Michael Douglas in the nose. I mean, I think everyone remembers that. I think mm-hmm. it was one of those cinema moments where people like laughed, clapped, stood up, you know, there was the expression of emotion was so huge. And I thought I'm trying to, I tried to write something where I was building up to a point like that, where you're just like, I don't know whether to laugh, scream, cry or, or what. So, yeah, that was basically it. But, I, you know, I was writing about empty nests and, like I said, I think I need to go back to social work for my next one so I can have some other <laughs> ideas, get out of the house. All right, we've got to let you go, Helen. Um, great conversation. The book is called Keep Her Sweet. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Cheryl. See ya. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.